Welcome, and thanks for listening along with Kingstown Communion, an inclusive and affirming United Methodist Church in the Kingstown area of Alexandria, Virginia. And our community exists to gather people, just like you here now, into communion with Christ and extend God's table into the world through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. This podcast is just one way that we live this out. For more information about our church or to give to our ministry, visit kingstowncommunion.net. And if you live nearby, we hope you'll join us for worship on Sundays at Hayfield Secondary School. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me in this time, when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Phoebe. Just leave it there. Um, So it seems to me that there are two main problems with, two main problems that people have with the Christian story as a whole. 
and I'm, this is from maybe the point of view of its detractors, but also, uh, maybe also from a lot of people who believe, but also hold within them like a lot of deep doubt, that there's two main problems with the Christian story. First, the first main problem is that it's way too extraordinary. There's way too many miracles, right? Uh, there are far too many angels, this is not the season for you, <laughs> angels in every week, uh, far too many miracles, um, far too fantastical of a conviction about the resurrection, far too wild of some notion about God who directs the course of events of history, right? It's far too, far, far too extraordinary. And then the second problem is really, I think, ironic. The second problem you hear a lot is that the story is the complete opposite. It's far too ordinary. It's just, well, it's just some obscure man in time in some quiet part of the Roman Empire with like about a dozen followers and some crude execution that led a handful of loyalists, you know, to not let the story die over time. And then you get the incarnation, which is what we're here for this season. We're, we're here to celebrate over these next 14 days as we, as we move towards the barn and, to, and towards Christmas Eve. Um, the incarnation, the birth story of a baby who is... these two problems, right? Who is fully human and fully miracle. It's part of this Christian story. Um, It's it's like this part of the story is the, the most clear crystallization of this paradox, these two problems that everybody always has with the Christian story of the ordinary and the extraordinary that lies with at the, in the heart of the Christian faith. Um, it's, it's here in this season where it all kind of happens. Now keep that paradox in mind for a second. Um, those kind of warring challenges of Christian faith, keep that in mind. Put them in your pocket. Don't forget them as we revisit the paradox, the challenge of this series that we're in. We are acknowledging together this Advent season that our weariness and our joy can be held together. That kind of like the two natures of Jesus, the humanness and the divinity, um, the two challenges of the Christian story, the ordinary and the extraordinary, that these two things can also be held together, weariness and joy. And we, one of our favorite hymns, O Holy Night, proclaims this paradox for us. We'll sing it, promise, not today. We hold that one, we're gonna hold that one. Um, but one of our, our favorite hymns, uh, O Holy Night, proclaims this, that a weary world has enough energy to rejoice. And so we're asking the question, how does a weary world rejoice then? And last week we explored the first answer to that. So the first answer to the question, um, through the story of Zechariah, and if you've heard it read today, it's, we're at the tail end, we're, we're moving on from that story in the same chapter of Luke. 
um, that the first step in, I guess, being a weary world that rejoices, how do we do it, is, well, we first have to acknowledge that we're weary, and I actually think that's pretty darn hard for us in this area, to acknowledge how weary we are. That we can't be healed, and we can't make room for Jesus, that our hearts cannot be made into the manger we want it to be, so that Jesus may be born in us too, today, um, until we get a hold of this paradox that we acknowledge that we actually feel very weary. So I wonder if during this week you have reflected on that at all, on how weary you are. I wonder if you felt it in your body at all, if you've tried to acknowledge it. I, know, I do know that when you acknowledge things, you have tried not to acknowledge that like, it's a precarious situation. <laughs> uh, so how, did, how has that felt? I, you, know, you don't have to say it out loud, but wondering how that's felt for you to, to really take stock of your own weariness. Um, and then today, um, this week we move forward in the first chapter of Luke. Um, have you noticed how much is in this first chapter of Luke? So much. It's jam-packed full. We move forward, and, and the picture now zooms in on Elizabeth. And immediately Luke tells us two things about her. One, that she's pregnant. And it is a, quite a geriatric pregnancy. A little known fact, if you are over 35, they call it a geriatric pregnancy. Yeah. Um, this one is, I would say that's not maybe real. This one is. This one is. Um, so we know one thing about her. She's pregnant. And that she's older and pregnant. And second... Did you hear it? That the first five months of her pregnancy, she's been in isolation. She's been in seclusion. Leaves a lot of questions. Why? Why have you been alone, Elizabeth? You remember the story from last week? Immediately the story begins with these challenging paradoxes, right? She's been given the thing that she's always wanted. Elizabeth is fully human, she, with, with all the wear and tear and wrinkles of age, and yet something divine has happened to her. Elizabeth is just this ordinary woman living in a town in the hill country of Judea, and yet something extraordinary is happening to this woman. Elizabeth has been finally given the baby for which her heart has longed for decades upon decades, and she's been given every reason to be joyful, to shout joy to the world from her rooftop, and yet she is weary and left asking, but God, why now? Why not then? Like, why give me what I've always wanted when I have no energy to care for it? when I likely won't live long enough to see it grow up. I'm weary and I'm tired and I'm all alone, which we learn. Zechariah is off on some silent spiritual sabbatical, I guess now. And I'm on, and, which you made happen, God. And I'm five months pregnant in this geriatric body and I'm all alone. 
And we all know the risks of a pregnancy like this one. This is why they call 35 and over geriatric, because they're higher risks. But the chances of, of Elizabeth carrying to full term a baby at her stage of life in that world was next to none. And so how do you, how do you expect me to ever for a moment fully experience this joy, God? This joy of what is to be when I know, I fear that in that moment it can all be taken away from me just in one little moment. And it's in that moment Elizabeth stuck in all those Christmassy paradoxes. Humanness and divinity, extraordinary and, and, and very ordinary geriatric body, the weariness and the worry, and also this joy that something's happened I've always wanted, and it's in that moment that the story finally zooms in on the one that we've all been waiting for. It's important that we note when it does that when we're in the midst of all those paradoxes. It finally zooms into Gabriel's annunciation to Mary. You know, the first few lines of the story, 25 verses in now, the story of Jesus' birth. It finally zooms in to the verses we've come to hear. That in the sixth month now, first five months in seclusion for Elizabeth, in the sixth month now of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sends the angel Gabriel to this little town in Nazareth, a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and Mary is her name. And it's in Elizabeth's moment of deepest weariness and foreboding joy, that kind of joy that you can't that you can't let yourself experience fully because you're afraid it's gonna be taken away from you if you do. It's in that moment that Luke introduces Mary and the angel appears to her. And we know what the angel tells her, right? Um, that that sh she will give birth to a son and that we will call him Jesus and that God will give him the throne of, the, of, of his father David and his kingdom will never end. And that's the part we always talk about. But the angel also tells Mary something else, something else very important. This very important thing, something ordinary and so human that gets overlooked often in all the extraordinary angeliness of this divine moment from God. The angel tells her that she is not gonna do this alone. She's a virgin who is pregnant with all the scandal and heartache we know that will include. But Mary, you're not the only one. You're not the only one caught in the paradox of weariness and joy. Your cousin Elizabeth is too. It's in that moment that that we get the second answer to our question, I think. How does a weary world rejoice? How do we, how do we rejoice? We, we rejoice in being reminded that we're not alone. 
in, it, it's the joy that we find in, in connection, in other people's paradox, in other people's place of just being suspended between that weariness and joy. We find, we find joy in connection and community. I wanted you to see um, this morning the way that I think it's best said by, you know, the person who talks about joy and vulnerability and connection and gratitude. I want you to hear it this morning from Brene Brown a little bit. As someone who studies shame and scarcity and fear, Mm -hmm. I will tell you that if you ask me what's the most terrifying, difficult emotion that we experience as humans, I would say joy. You would say that the most terrifying is joy? No question. Why? You know, I, I often ask parents, I say, I, you know, I'll have 5,000 parents or something in the audience and I'll say, raise your hand if you've ever stood over your child while he or she was sleeping and thought to yourself, I love you like I didn't know was possible. Yeah, yeah. And then in that split second, picture something horrific happening well, to your child. What if something happened to you? Yes, yeah. How many of you have ever sat up and said, wow, work's going good? good relationship with my partner. Yeah. Parents seem to be doing okay. Uh-huh. Holy crap. Something What's going to happen? Yes. Right. So what is that? You know what that is? What is that? When we lose our tolerance for vulnerability. Lose our tolerance for vulnerability. Yeah. Joy becomes foreboding. I'm not going to feel you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to soften into this moment of joy. Because, because I'm scared. I'm scared it's going to be taken away. The other shoe's going to drop. So say that again. When we lose our tolerance for vulnerability, you said in the book, but I didn't get it this deep. Go ahead. When we lose our tolerance yeah. to be vulnerable, yes. joy becomes foreboding. And so what we do in moments of joyfulness is we try to beat vulnerability to the punch. Yesterday, I'm on the plane. I'm yeah. getting ready to leave. I'm taking pictures and tweeting them out. I'm on the cockpit, Super Soul Sunday, or over <laughs> a bus, maybe. I'm taking pictures. The plane gets down the runway and has to come back because something's wrong. I was like, I knew it. I called Steve. I said, let me just tell you something. I know because I'm fixing to meet Oprah <laughs> that I'm going to die. <laughs> and at my funeral, yeah. you better say she was going to be on Super Soul Sunday. Oh, my goodness. And she's like, foreboding joy, foreboding joy. Foreboding joy. Right. I interviewed a man who told me my whole life I never got too excited, too joyful about anything. I just kind of stayed right in the middle. That way... If things didn't work out, I wasn't devastated. And if they did work out, it was a pleasant surprise. Oh my goodness. He's, and so many people said, he said, in his 60s, he was in a car accident. His wife of 40 years was killed. Uh-huh, wow. And he said, the second I realized that she was gone, the first thing I thought was, I should have leaned harder into those moments of joy. Because mm. that did not protect me from what I feel right now. We're trying, to, we're trying to dress rehearse tragedy so we yes. can beat vulnerability to the punch. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. So you, want, so you know what happens? This is what the joyful people do. This is what I learned from them. In those moments where like, they're getting ready to come here or some, they're looking at their children or their partner or something great, they get that shudder too, but you know what they do? They don't say, oh, there's that shudder of terror about feeling joyful, I'm gonna dress rehearse tragedy. They say, I'm gonna practice gratitude. So I just sat on that plane on the runway for 20 minutes going, I'm grateful, I'm grateful. And I think I was like BSing a little bit. I was faking, I am grateful, but gratitude is a practice. It is tangible. You can see it. Yeah. It's not an attitude of gratitude. Absolutely. 
It is a practice. And what I found is that when you actively practice gratitude, where you concentrate on not just thinking about it, but write things down, you go through the day looking for it. You There's go no question. Through the, you go through the day looking for it. Isn't it amazing? It's like magic. It is. And you know what? I think we appreciate the little things. Yes. I think one of the things that happens in a culture of scarcity is we're all chasing the extraordinary and we forget. Like when I interviewed people who went through horrific things. I mean, I'm talking about the loss of children, genocide, violence, trauma. And I talked to them about what's the hardest loss. They never talked about the extraordinary things. They said, I miss the ordinary moments. I miss hearing the screen door slam and knowing my husband's home from work. Mm -hmm. I miss hearing my kids fighting in the backyard. I miss the way that my wife set the table. And those are the moments that are in front of all of us every day that we could stop and say, God, I'm grateful for this. Mm -hmm. When, when we enter into the story, the story at the heart of our faith, the story that is the greatest moment of, of humanity and divinity coming together, of the extraordinary and the ordinary meeting, and the weariness that's gonna take this baby all the way to the cross, and the joy that we know in Christmas and in the resurrection. When we, when we gather for that story and when we enter it in Luke, Luke brings us to the beginning of that story by reminding us that we can't get the joy, that we aren't gonna experience the joy until we acknowledge the weariness, but also until we make connections with others who are also weary like we are in different ways, right? In completely different ways. Mary and Elizabeth are not at all alike. Not at all. I, I imagine our culture tells us that, that Elizabeth should be jealous of Mary. Her youth, how easy it will be for her to birth this child. Our culture tells us that, that Mary should be jealous of everything Elizabeth has, that she was married, that no one thinks that her, her pregnancy is a scandal. At the, very, at, at the most, they think it didn't happen. It's... It's amazing though, how often we allow our weariness to isolate us, to, to pull us into seclusion, instead of pushing us into connection with God and with others. And so I wonder, I wonder this, um, this second Sunday of Advent, um, how, how is God calling you to connect right now? How, how is God calling you to connect with the weariness of others? Let's pray.
God, we talk about connection with others and vulnerability with others. And these are buzzwords, right? Just as much as Brene Brown is. Um, And yet when we take stock of our relationship with you, we realize um, when we tend to, to, to humble ourselves before you, we, we, it's when we have been isolated or secluded for so long or we experience such deep tragedy that we come running back or it's when we show up on Christmas or Easter morning and, and we're filled with this kind of joy intoxication that's not the real everyday tug between our weariness and our desire to find joy in you. And so we, God, first, we just acknowledge our inability to be vulnerable with you, to connect with you, God, to connect our story with your story, God. We're not the only ones weary. God, you know what weariness feels like. If we feel completely disconnected from your story, God, we don't know it. It's that you took flesh in Jesus, became human in Jesus all the way, all the way to the end. That gives us a picture of how you are with us wherever we are now. And then that should, that should remind us Whatever, um, however self-serving sometimes our, our weariness and our, our foreboding becomes, uh, it always happens to me. I always feel this way. Why does this keep happening? We extend, we open up, and then we look around and realize that everyone else is on this journey too. And so God, open us up. Open us up this Advent to, to see those, even those we may have uh, been jealous of, judged, uh, um, those we don't understand, those who annoy us to no end, to imagine just for a second how they might be caught in this paradox between weariness and joy too. Humble us, God. And so that we, as we make room for you, we're making room for others too. As we're making a manger in our hearts, we're pulling up chairs so that others can come to that manger too. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Mm -hmm.